Welcome to episode two of the Analytics FC podcast. Um, I'm Tom Warvel and I've got Sam with me. Hey, it's good to be here. And thanks everyone for listening to the uh, first podcast with Richard. Um, I think it was a really interesting interview and it was nice for him to come on to sort of help us kick off this, uh, this little project. As always, you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Those will be in the podcast description. Um, so Sam, episode two, Championship. Why, why have we chosen to do this? Well, I, I sure I, you write for your own blog and you write mainly MLS stuff. But writing for uh, writing for an editor, I'm asked all the time to write Champions League and Premier League stuff, and I feel like we sort of get, especially the Premier League, jammed down our throats. So sort of we thought it'd be nice to focus on this podcast on some different some different leagues that don't necessarily get the same coverage, and with the Championship playoffs, it's perfect timing right now. I agree, definitely. So I, I sort of feel as well with the championship that every year there's just a stupid level of uncertainty in the league and there's always some crazy storylines happening. And uh, With the, the Premier League having all the money, you don't always see these bubble over. So it's going to be nice to do a bit of a season recap and sort of dive into those storylines and, and see what people might have missed. Yeah, and I, usually, I mean, myself, I usually don't really follow the championship until it gets to the last couple of weeks. And I know every year I'm always shocked at how close it is and how many teams still have a chance to get into the playoffs with two weeks left or one, even the last day in this year, there was more craziness with Derby falling out. And it just, it's really exciting at the end of the year. I don't think there's any league that's as close as the championship is consistently. I totally agree. Even, I mean, the, the Premier League with quite a few things recently by, I think Simon Gleave wrote how it's, it's been boring for years and, with La Liga as well being a pretty much a duopoly, apart from the the Atletico blip, which you can probably call it yeah. last year. Um, yeah, it should be good. So we've got Brentford in there, everyone's favourite second team, I guess. Derby, like you said, we can we're going to cover that how they uh, sort of just missed out, but see how that sort of um, if that was a long time coming or not. Millwall, Wigan, and Blackpool were the teams that were relegated from the league, so we'll uh, we'll be covering those. Um, Bournemouth and Watford are the two automatic promotion sides with um, Bournemouth sneaking through to win the league overall on the final day so we'll be covering those also Uh, and then we can do a little bit of a a preview for the playoff final between Norwich and Middlesbrough got there in the end Um, and then a couple of other things to discuss with regards to Ben who's going to be our our guest so Ben, why did we choose Ben really? Well, I was I was joking yesterday that Ben actually hates analytics because he was the only person I think in in all of my uh, Twitter feed yesterday who was cheering for Middlesbrough, which is <laughs> over Brentford. Yeah, evil, really, isn't it? Yeah, so it's the analytics FC podcast. I think Brentford's about as close as you can get to real life analytics FC. And <laughs> anyways, but Ben Ben does really good stuff in the championship. He um, if you follow him on Twitter, he posts graphics almost daily, which are really nice easy things to read. He does these expected versus actual points things, which I love, which is just looking at which teams the bookies do well on, which teams the bookies don't do well on. It's really interesting. Anyways, he's probably well, he is my favorite championship analyst. So excited to have him on. Yeah, it should be good. Should be good. I want to look forward to hearing his arguments about. Um why he's supporting Middlesbrough and not Brentford, even though half the stuff he's doing should be to root for <laughs> Brentford, but <laughs> we'll see. But um, yeah, no, I think his um, actual point and, and looking with the bookies is a really sort of simple thing of getting the data of the odds on different teams and and then pulling out those results and, and yeah, just very quite a basic over, overview of 
the league and, and the odds, but the results are quite interesting and definitely applicable for people who are, are interested in the analytics side of things um, because of sports betting. So, yeah, a bit different, not for something we have covered in one episode previously, but um, yeah, should be good. We'll uh, get him on soon. So, guys, championship. <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> well, let's, let's start with yesterday's game. Or, two days ago now, I guess, the uh, Brentford Middlesbrough game. Were you there, Ben? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. It was um, probably the, the best atmosphere I can remember, really, um, at least since uh, you know, the US Cup game. Um, it was worth seeing, you know, the the, the darlings, the stats, people <laughs> get beaten. <I> think. <laughs> That's what me and, me and Sam were mentioning beforehand about how, in all this, everyone's sort of second team is Brentford, and yet Middlesbrough come against Brentford, and you're you're sadly cheering on Middlesbrough. So um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean Brentford are obviously a really exciting side um, to follow. What what they do? Yeah, I mean, you can't really. So, what, what was it, 5-1 on aggregate? Is that correct? Um, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty damning, but um, we'll see. I reckon it's going to be a really good final, I feel, because Middlesbrough have really stern defence and uh, Norwich are a really, really big shots team. So, um, I mean, either of those should do pretty well in the Premier League, just considering that they're quite extremes in, in attack and defence, respectively, so... I was just going to say, it seems pretty rare that we've actually got three versus four in the championship final. All the, we seem to get a lot of these five and six teams that upset the uh, three and fours, and you get these teams that finished essentially the table going up to the Premier League. Yeah, well, Leicester, I can't remember what position they were in, but I have a, oh no, they won, sorry, they won. But who snuck in last year? Did Burnley sneak in, sneak in sorry, or was it Q- QPR? QPR, because QPR, QPR won the playoff one. Ah, okay, I see. Well, I I did a bit of... I stuck out a graph on Twitter before this and um, essentially showing how many of the newly promoted teams stay up first season or get relegated. Um, And I think the the average is 46% are relegated first year. And um, the average is like 1.4, so about one team per season comes down. Um, So it's sort of good for, for teams that are going up, three going up. I think there's only been two occasions in 23 seasons of, of the Premiership era that all three teams have gone down. So that's quite good for the teams going up because it means they have historically got a fighting chance of staying in the league. Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting to look at is um, I think um, Bournemouth have some kind of uh, maybe recruitment issues this summer. Um, they've got a few older players and got kind of a relatively small squad. I don't I think the teams that look like they, they might come up do look quite strong. As opposed to last year when we had QBR, who just seemed like a mess. Yeah, I definitely think uh, you probably both agree that just QPR's player ID and the whole way they build their squad season on season is pretty poor. Yeah, like it, well, it, it seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, it really is, any, it is a season-by-season approach. You've got it right. There's no long-term thinking. I mean, you look at everything they've made over the past 
especially I think this this year was the worst. The signings they brought in to start Premier League was all ex Premier League players of the past. It was an All Star team ten years ago, really. <laughs> Yeah, it was very sort of wishful thinking, uh, hoping that the Rio Ferdinand would work out, and uh, you know Joey Barden steps up and a, becomes a, a decent Premier League centre mid, and they had a couple of good players. I mean, I quite like Leroy Fur, um, Corker's a decent centre back, Charlie Austin's obviously a great striker, but um, yeah, you need you need more than that to stay in the league, and for the money they have and the the sort of resources available to them, um, it's shocking that they've gone down again after just one season. So. So how do you think this crop compares, Ben, to, to promoted teams you've seen in the past? Do you think Bournemouth and Watford have a good chance of staying in the league? Um, well, I mean, in terms of, in terms of the, the numbers, um, comparisons can be a bit tricky. Because, um, so what, one thing is that the, kind of the easiest source for historical data is the footballdata.co.uk spreadsheet. But um, they data provider. Uh, at the beginning of the 13-14 season. So there's um, kind of some differences in, in the numbers there. But, uh, I mean, to me, it seems like this is one of the stronger groups of teams teams to come up. I mean, like you said, I've got Middlesbrough defensively very good. Um, and Norwich, who, kind of in terms of the shots... Uh, I've got the stats up here. So Norwich are first ranked for total shots ratio, um, which for those listening who don't know what that is, essentially the total of shots for your team uh, over the total of shots for and against your team. So so taken and conceded. So they've got 62% there, which is really, really high, considering second place is Bournemouth with 59%, um, and third place is Middlesbrough with 55%. What I found quite interesting was Watford have a, a TSR of 51%. That puts them 10th of the table. Beginning of the season, um, them and Derby had relatively good ratios. But, um, you know, PDO, which is the summer conversion at both ends, really high. So they've been saving a lot of doctor scoring, um, a lot of the shots are getting it. Kind of, it didn't look sustainable for a while. I guess it's, kind of, it's probably down to, you know, having um, both. Troy Deeney and um, Yeah, well, you do see some teams that can maintain sort of a high conversion. So for those who don't know, PDO is save percentage plus shooting, I don't know what we call it now, conversion ratio, mm-hmm. basically the amount of shots the team has on target, or the amount of goals the team has on target divided by the number of shots on target. And save percentage is hard to sort of keep sustainable throughout a season, but there are a few teams that have sort of higher finishing percentages or higher conversion ratios that are somewhat sustainable. I mean, you get some of the top teams in all across Europe, and they tend to have higher conversion ratios, which are sustainable. So it isn't necessarily that PDO always progresses back to the average. And also, Ben, taken from your uh, advanced stats page, um, I've looked at the sort of expected goal model swing. So in terms of goals minus goals, uh, expected goals for and goals against minus expected goals against. Now, obviously, I don't know the intricacies of your model, but um, Bournemouth have got a, a goal swing of plus 12, so they've scored 11 more than the sort of stats suggest and conceded one less. Um, Watford have the biggest goal swing in the whole league. They've scored 20 more than expected and conceded seven less. And then you've got sort of the, the playoff contenders. So Middlesbrough have actually scored two less than suggested, 
but kept out 15 more. And then you've yeah. got Norwich, who've overscored by 16 and overconceded by 6. Watford are quite big numbers there, but and obviously, like we're saying, going back to repeatability and sort of randomness in football, you can't really bank on that working in the Premier League and next season you could have easily a big defensive swing and, and especially looking at their t- total shots ratio, a defence could struggle if it's not reinforced against better, you know, more Premier League uh, attackers. I think kind of quite big caveats when it comes to Watford. Um, I mean, one is that they, I think, have played quite a lot of their time in the league uh, with 10 men. So that's probably affected the, the shots race as well as, as well as, you know, also having their, their input. And then I think the second thing, the big thing, is, um, you know, their partner, Pozzo uh, group. I think given the, the TV deal and the money that's in the Premier League, I think it's going to be quite a lot of there's quite a lot of invested in and kept in. Um, so I think, yeah, I think, I think it'll be interesting to they kind of adapt, uh, promoted. Yeah, there was something in the um, Evening Standard this week saying how the Pozzo family have viewed Watford as their first team now versus sort of uh, Udinese. And it's going to, obviously, they, they get quite a lot of players from Granada and Udinese anyway, but whether we're going to see a move for, say, Di Natale for his career swan song to the Premier League or a couple more of their more premier attackers from Udinese coming over. So I think Watford are going to have a really interesting summer, the same as Bournemouth. It just depends on Bournemouth have got to try and upgrade without that sort of link to a, another Premier League, another top sorry side. And and with the sort of the gap between, I, d- I don't know if there's an sort of ELO rating for... Um, Bournemouth and Watford to see how they would rank in the Premier League now but I don't know I'd suggest that they I mean Watford are, might stand quite well purely because they've got quite a deep squad at the moment like you said uh, and Bournemouth equally they've got quite a shallow team so they're going to have to bring the changes really Yeah I think it's worth saying that um, I can't remember who but I, I think it's probably um, James Grayson uh, wrote about looking at you know looking at how teams who've been promoted from the championship and he found that it was you know, quite difficult to to see kind of a strong correlation between either one. Um, so, as much as we can say that the current conversion is is look sustainable, continuing or that I'm not going to do really well by, by the shots in the Premier League. Um, it's just really hard to to compare shots between the two leagues. Another team we wanted to talk about as well was uh, Derby because they're I think most of us saw them would have been shocked in February if you said they weren't even going to get a playoff spot. They looked like the strongest team in the league. And I was just wondering, do you think that the underlying stats sort of support that? Or should we, see, should we have seen the collapse coming back then? Right. So, um, I think, yeah. So, obviously, they collapsed pretty spectacularly. I think Kaylee described it as Kaslan in the cupboard, which is quite good. But, um, yes, that piece uh, uh, which you mentioned before, as a sign of sustainability, was really high um, throughout the season. And they've kept it up for a long time. Um, but obviously, as it got to the season, they had some injuries um, as well, which contributed to it. Um, and, and it just dropped down really, really 
fast, really, really low. Um, so I think to, to answer your question, I think we should have seen some kind of regression to the mean. We should have seen them cool off a bit, but the rate of stay cooled was kind of pretty unsustainable. It was just a massive swing in the other direction, you know, to see that we expected to, to see that coming, you know, was was equally kind of unlikely. Um, so it was really just a big swing in, in, in luck for them, I guess. Do you think they, they really miss Chris Martin when he was out injured sort of towards the end of the season? Do you think that was the key piece? I mean, it's, it's difficult to say with these things. I think, you know, watching them and, and seeing that is really easy to say, to attribute to that. And I think, um, you know, I think it probably did have quite a big effect. But then equally, you know, you look at the numbers and you say, well, actually, this, their, their incredibly high PDO did kind of suggest that this was unsustainable anyway. You know, it's one of those things where you can easily get to, to the injury to Chris Martin. Um, but, you know, the numbers kind of do suggest that maybe, maybe it was just, you know, they, they kind of had it coming anyway. And that's quite a, big, <clears throat> quite a big theme in terms of regressing to the mean. And I guess it, trying to pinpoint that to any one player in terms of, oh, Darren Bent's not converting as he was or Chris Martin's out injured. I guess that's very much what we could refer to as match of the day analysis versus sort of incorporating the numbers and thinking about, you know, this is more than just uh, an individual player. There are 10 others on the pitch that have equal weighting in terms of uh, the, the team's results and performance. Yeah, I mean... I think maybe calling it match of the day analysis is kind of a bit harsh. Right? I think Derby, you know, when you watch Derby, they, they do look like a really good side. But yeah, it's, it's that kind of the divergence between what the numbers say and what kind of maybe your eyes and your traditional intuition says can be quite quite strong sometimes. And I think Derby is a good example for that. So, Sam, shall we, um, shall we talk about Brentford? Move it onto that? <laughs> I'm happy to talk about Brentford. I don't know. <laughs> we could do a separate podcast just to talk about Brentford. But, um, I mean, where do we start? I mean, I guess we can start with the news that you sort of broke on Twitter, or to my timeline anyway, about um, Rasmus Ankerson and Phil Giles becoming the uh, co-directors of football at the club. Yeah, no, I just thought they'd uh, appointed them, which it really it's not that surprising when you think that... Uh, Ankerson is already the uh, director of football at, at the Danish club, which I'm not even going to try and pronounce. <laughs> and uh, so I don't think it's that surprising of a move, but it's nice to see that this is Brentford. I think it'll be the, the most interesting thing I'm looking at this season is to see what kind of manager they get in because they've been, well, it's been very clear to say they're looking for a head coach, not a manager, not someone who can control everything. And I think getting a head, obviously the head coach will understand the situation there coming in. It'll be interesting to see what kind of guy they get. They go for a younger, untested guy, or if they try and bring someone who has a more traditional background and he'll, he'll have to sort of, I guess, work his way into the new system at Brentford. Yeah, so the name that I saw that was linked was, um, this was quite a few months ago, was uh, Paco Hemes, the um, Rayo Vallecano uh, head coach just because he's sort of used to that system of he's in charge of the team and leave everything else up to the sort of technical and backroom staff. I guess considering we've got Ben here, Ben, do you know what sort of system they have at Middlesbrough with Karanka? Is he in charge of transfers or? Um, so I think the system this summer, um, but 
from what I understand, he is kind of a manager. But there is kind of some um, higher level kind of working with him. So I think um, I think there's some of it in I can't remember his name now, but um, one of the uh, a director who used to be at Chelsea. And I guess there's more of a link that that link between Chelsea and Middlesbrough is quite obvious with the um, the signings of sort of Omarua. Um, I've absolutely butchered that name. Patrick Bamford as well, uh, and the goalkeeper as well. I can't remember his name, but um, that link with sort of Chelsea and Middlesbrough is quite interesting. And um, another one that obviously we have Brentford and uh, Midtjylland bringing it back to Brentford. And there was a piece this week about. Obviously, they moved uh, Rasmus Sankson and, and Phil Giles to co-director of football, and they also made a new signing with Akaki Godja, I think is um, some sort of pronunciation, who's uh, an attacking midfielder who plays in Division Three in Germany. And looking at sort of his very stereotypical YouTube highlights, he looks like a, a, a dead ball specialist. And we had a bit of a debate this week about on Twitter about how maybe clubs value those sort of dead ball specialists more because they can do more with them. What do you guys think about the signing? Do you think it, it indicates a new sort of focus on the style of play for Brentford? Or? Well, it's hard to sort of, I mean, obviously I've never seen him play. And I think it's Sander, Eleven Tegan on Twitter, made the joke that we're all retrofitting our models now to have, put this guy up and give him a high ranking and try <laughs> and figure out what kind of what kind of model they're actually using at Brentford. But definitely this is the first signing of the sort of new age. Well, it's the first signing since uh, Ted Knudsen was announced as head of player to player recruitment, I think. So it's clearly it's clearly one of his signings. I think there is a big focus. I know in Denmark they've got a big focus on the set pieces. So it's not surprising to see them go after a dead ball specialist. It'll be interesting to see how this works into the overall approach. Yeah, I think as well. I think there was a, a goal impact chart that, that was tweeted yesterday as well that I think gave him a current goal impact of about one, 115, um, which from what I understand is um, is kind of, I think 100 is supposed to be about the, the average for the Bundesliga. But yeah, so, so I think that looks quite, quite promising as well. We should probably, so a, a bit of a primer about goal impact. Um, and guys, feel free to, to chip in if you think you could add anything more. It, it's sort of um, a model that looks at less bottom-up stats and, and more sort of top-down um, effects of players within teams. So I think it looks at goal difference with players in the team versus out the team. Very much sort of similar to a sort of plus-minus score with that you can use in, in baseball and, and basketball to look at the effects of the results of having a certain player in the team versus out the team probably the more open, probably the only open public uh, model out there that does this sort of thing. And yeah, it's quite an interesting model because I think the highest ranked player in the world that is on that model currently is Thomas Muller. And it has Cristiano Ronaldo as the 21st best player, I think. So it's sort of ranking those players less on the sort of um, high output stats that many of us relate to Ronaldo Messi and more to the overall impact on the team that isn't always tangible in terms of stats. And and I guess the sort of highlight of that would be um, Mesut Ozil being someone who isn't always great with the numbers, but then when you see his sort of on-field impact and the movement he makes, that sort of intangible stuff you can't measure with the stats we have currently, but you can measure in terms of, you know, is he making a difference on the pitch in terms of goal difference? 
Yeah, they sort of. I think they're modeled after shapely values, which are a game theory concept. And the idea is to sort of, as you said, figure out what is the what is the contribution each player is making to the overall team. And you, as you said, you can figure that out by when a player leaves the team. What's the effect? It's more looking at as you said the team stats and is this player actually contributing as opposed to what are this player's underlying numbers. And Ben, I guess to to get your view on on this sort of ELO system versus advanced stats, sort of on an individual level, what models do you prefer, and where do you see things going in terms of? Do you think these ELO models are the the way to go? <laughs> I mean, it's quite a big question. You know, <laughs> ultimately, I'm just a fan, uh, like like you. But um, I mentioned to you before that uh, these kind of top down models seem more fitting. Um, so maybe looking at overall impact and overall um, contribution. But then if you want to find a certain style of player or somebody who can fit a, a certain role, you can then have to look at, okay, well, what kind of stats is he doing well in? What kind of things is he doing? Is he maybe producing lots of shots or is he contributing in some other way? So, yeah, I think recruitment from what I would imagine, um, you probably need, need both to kind of complement each other. Um, so that's a bit of a, a bit of a sitting on the fence answer. No, I think I think that's a really good answer because we're sort of it sort of paints a picture in terms of we have a, a player that evidently has good team effects. Let's take and someone that was in a recent goal impact post was um, Stefan Ilsanka, who's a um, I think he's a Australian Austrian sorry right back for Red Bull Salzburg, and so he was one of the top fifty players in the world, and he's made that model. So in terms of top 50 players, I guess you two might have heard of him maybe because you're some sort of football hipster, but in terms of like recognisable name, he's not that big. Um, and then you go and look at the underlying stats and see whether he's actually got good output or defensively he's very solid or it, whether it's just his stats aren't that great and it's just the team effect of Red Bull are the premier team in Austria and they're by far and away, you know, they run away with the league every season, so... No, that, I think that's a, a solid answer. And Sam, would you agree? Yeah, no, I think that for sure that, that and that plays into every decision you make is what kind of player, what, what kind of player are you actually dealing with? And you can't just look at, okay, this is how the team plays with and without them. That's sort of, I guess, a, I think goal impact's a good starting point. And then to understand a player, you have to go to these individual steps. So to pull it back to the uh, the championship again, and to look at the the relegated size, three relegated teams in the league, Millwall, uh, Wigan and Blackpool. It seems to me with those, Wigan have been sort of the, on the receiving end of, I guess, the sort of effect that teams get in terms of if you don't stay up or get uh, promoted again within two seasons, you're likely to go down from the the Premier League again. Um, would you guys agree or do you think that the sort of Malky Mackay, Dave Whelan storyline there is has had an effect on the team? I mean, I would say, I think, Obviously, Blackpool are a position bottom team, but I think Wigan have been maybe a bit unlucky to go down at least at least by the numbers. You know, they've got a total shot ratio of fifty percent, um, although their their shot on target ratio is is um, just a touch over forty five percent, which isn't great. That's still not not terrible or not as bad as their, their results would suggest. So. I think maybe I mean, it's easy to be optimistic um, when you consider kind of a lot of the off the pitch 
stuff but in terms of pure football numbers um, they maybe haven't been so terrible yeah I mean that was the big story around Wigan this year was the Malky Mackay thing and it's always hard to tell sort of separate the numbers from what's happening off the pitch but it's interesting they do have a high TSR well a relatively high TSR for a team that's gone down so I've just looked at TSRs in the Premier League of the three or four teams that are still in the relegation fight and they're all hovering around 0.4, 0.42. So it's really strange to see a team get relegated with a TSR of 0.5. Yeah, I think, I think the Champions are a bit weirder in the sense that there's a less strong relationship between shots and, and goals and points than the Premier League. It's a bit more volatile. I think that's partly because in the Premier League, you know, you have the, the Super 7 or whatever, the, the top teams who kind of always going to do well and that makes the shot ratio maybe a bit easier to read because the bad teams will tend to have uh, shot ratios but yeah, yeah so, so it, it's a bit more difficult to see um, from the shot ratios um, where, where teams will end up but yeah they, they do um, they have been unlucky I think and um, Ben looking at your expected goals models for these three um, and looking at the sort of swing in, in goals they've actually scored versus the expected ones we've got down. Um, Millwall have got a huge minus 29 goals on their goal difference, which they, they've they over-conceded uh, 13 and underscored 16 goals. And Blackpool are the same. They've um, underscored by about 10 uh, and over-conceded by 13. So is there an element of randomness in this, or do you guys think that it's a, a sort of underlying trait that these teams are just bad, or do you think they've been... Categorically unlucky, regardless of TSR. I think it has to be a bit of both. You know, there's always going to be bad teams, and I think there's an element of luck in which bad teams can land in the bottom three. Yeah, I think Blackpool. You know, when you look at Blackpool, I think you could say that the low conversion is because they're lucky or whatever. But I think if you look at the squad and the way the teams run, I think. They are one team that is just really bad. On the other hand, with Wigan, I think it's more difficult to say. So, for instance, they they've conceded eleven point seven shots against per game um, by my numbers. And then, if you look at the teams around them, you know, Blackpool have got thirteen point nine shots per game, Millwall thirteen point seven. Um, so they they were conceding a lot fewer goals against media signers that they were doing some things right defensively. So another thing we wanted to talk about with you is the uh, actual points versus expected point starts that you've been making with looking at the uh, bookies' odds. And I was just curious, are there teams the bookies consistently overrate or consistently underrate and aren't correcting for, or do the bookies do a pretty good job in general, do you think? Well, they, they, I think they do a really um, good job. I think it's partly... So the way that the expected points are calculated is um, is taking some of the, the odds that are published on the Friday um, on Friday before the round of games, um, and then calculating kind of a win probability from those odds, and then using that to work out the the expected points. But um, yeah, so if you look at the correlation between expected points and actual points over the past over the past ten years or so. There's a really, really close correlation, really, really strong. And I think the the best teams do tend to uh, overperform slightly, and the worst teams do tend to underperform slightly. So, in other words, the kind of if a team has got a high expected points, 
they're probably going to overperform that more as well um, in general. But yeah, I mean, obviously their models are better than any of the shops models or whatever that we have to calculate. And another chart that I liked of yours was sort of looking at um, managers uh, and plotting managers versus, was it, ex- I think it was expected points or it might have been um, just points. Um, and it had a, a couple that stuck out um, quite a lot. So I think it was the Leeds manager was unlucky to get sacked. Um, and it looked to me, or from memory, that that was down to sort of uh, randomness and a bit of bad PDO in terms of how the team was performing. Are there any sort of managers from your research that sort of stick out uh, and those that then again, on the other hand, really stick out for the, for the bad reasons that the teams they have are performing uh, poorly? Um, yeah, so I think there's there's a couple of quite interesting managers. So one is the, the split between the Norwich managers. So they each managed about half a season and Alex Neal, uh, the manager now, came in and went on a great winning streak. And, you know, the the narrative is kind of that he's this great young manager. Um, he's only 33 as well, um, who's come in and changed things and done really well. But then if you look at the underlying numbers, they're almost identical apart from PDO. Um, so what he overperformed expected points more than, than his predecessor, um, it's... Kind of the numbers look pretty similar. It looks like it's a conversion swing rather than anything else. Um, so he's maybe benefited from that. But then one of the other managers who looks uh, really impressive is the the new Birmingham manager uh, who, who who's overperformed. So at the beginning of the year, Birmingham looked pretty pretty dire, but um, yeah, he's come in and, and changed things and they're overperforming uh, quite quite strongly. Um, and then, interestingly, if you look at uh, his performance with, I think, Burton before he came to Birmingham, um, it was the same again there. He really strongly over- overperformed the expected points there as well. So I think he's an interesting manager to watch. I think he, it'll be interesting to see if he keeps that up next year um, and what he does there, uh, given given this kind of data. So one thing that we've seen in the championship is that these margins are so, so small. I mean, teams are the difference between being promoted or being in the playoffs and being near the relegation zone is only 20 some points at some points of the season. So I'm curious with the, with the margins so small, do you think there's more room for teams in the championship to start expanding into analytics and using techniques like Brentford where they've reinvented their entire system than there is maybe in the premier league, just because these margins are so small and the reward might be greater. Yeah, I think I think definitely. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing to look at. Um, I think as well, like the Premier League teams, and there's so much money there, and there's so much more money than in other leagues, and teams that can kind of, you know, maybe get away with just spending lots of money. But in the Championship, obviously, there's less money. It is a lot tighter. So maybe um, there is more of an incentive to get these marginal gains um, and, and, and pick up those those extra points from places that are maybe, you know, squeeze out more, more goals. And from your, your work around sort of uh, the, the charts you do with sort of minutes uh, and peak age teams, do you think that there could be more scope to tie in what Sam said about having a, a sort of analytics area um, and tying it in with the, the peak age stuff and, and ensuring you have a balanced squad that is uh, aging sort of into their good years? 
um, versus, I guess, a team that's full of veterans or, or really young talents and there's no sort of middle section of the, the peak age years of players? Well, I think, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, um, you hear a lot when managers speak about getting um, a balance and, you know, that's maybe one of the uh, wisdoms that's held held in the game because of, you know, people's subjective experience. So I think it's interesting to see, um, particularly with what Brentford do, how they approach that, you know, are they going to fit with lots of younger players with resale value who are going to move into peak with Brentford or are they going to get that balance? Are they going to add some experience here to been promoted before or just do they not value it? So I think it, it's a difficult one to say that, it, yeah, it's difficult to say whether whether it's better to have the, the young players, but I think that's something that, that it will be interesting to see. Yeah, how squads are built built in the future, and whether whether anything changes. And just to sort of tie in with people who may not know about your sort of work around peak age, um, can you give a sort of explanation around what the thinking is behind that? Right. So I mean, it, it's not terribly complicated. I, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a sports scientist and I'm not um, an expert in, in physiology by any means, but it's just kind of an idea that um, you can look at where teams are putting most of their minutes played and how close to um, the peak age. So most studies seem to suggest um, a peak peak performance comes between the age of 4 and 30. So that would suggest that you probably want most of your minutes being played by players who are in that age to get the highest performance, especially as older players are probably likely to be on higher wages and decreasing value, decreasing productivity. And it also ties into uh, some work done by Dan Altman um, on quantifying league strength by the age curve. So leagues that are really strong and really good are more likely to have more players in peak age, whereas leagues that are maybe kind of less developed, less advanced, like I think one example is the A-League um, in Australia, are likely to have fewer minutes in this peak age and more spread out around the older players and the younger players. So we, we had a question this week about tra- how transferable performances are from the championship into the Premier League, just on an individual basis, like, are players that excel in the championship, how do they do in the in the Premier League after with promoted teams? And we thought Leicester is sort of a good example because they seem to stack up on a lot of championship quality players yet have stayed up this season. I'm wondering how transferable do you think those performances are? Well, in terms of players or teams? Player level, just because you have some players, say uh, Jose Fonte of Southampton, who's stuck with them since League One and is sort of slowly grown into a, a championship, now Premier League, and, and now international footballer with Portugal. From from the football you've seen, I guess, what we've seen, we've only seen a, a few examples of that. Another one i could say is probably Jamie Vardy at Leicester, going from the conference all the way to not a great Premier League striker. His, his scoring record isn't amazing, but he still a, has been a useful asset for that side. Do you think that's an underlying trend, or do you think that's, say, something to do with talent or team effects and sort of the way that players develop um, and they're being coached to adapt to those sort of leagues? I, 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 I think that's a difficult question. I think one thing 
um, is that if you look at some of these players, quite often it's players that have, or it seems to me, um, you know, that, that it seems to be players that have stuck with one team that kind of move up to divisions. I guess you do get players like uh, Ricky Lambert um, as well, who've kind of moved about teams as they've gone through the divisions. But um, yeah, you pick the example of Southampton, you know, they've got Lallana, well, they don't have Lallana anymore, but Lallana and, and Fonte and, and the rest of them that have um, come up with them. So maybe there's an element of kind of players being able to perform at a higher level when they're in a in a team that's been stuck together for, for longer. Um, I think that's maybe whether or not it actually is, is you know, I, I haven't looked at it that strongly. Um, but another, another point as well, I think there's an old stats bottom piece by um, Ted Knutson before he, before he signed off and went dark on goal scoring through the divisions. And I think it was, um, I think he picked a benchmark of about, um, as you go up each league, goal scoring increases by, I think, about 0.8. I mean, I could be wrong. Um, it, it's worth looking at up the article again. But I think he made the point that at the time, Jordan Rhodes, who'd just been signed by Blackburn, and had been scoring for fun for Huddersfield in League One. Um, you know, these players, on average, do tend to perform as well in the Premier League, in the Championship, as they go up the divisions. Um, so I think maybe I think maybe there is an element that talent is more transferable than we think, based on the, the reputation of the league that someone's already in. Cool. So let's just... I guess wrap up now by uh, asking for a championship final playoff final prediction from you. <laughs> um, well, you know, obviously I'm biased, but um, I think yeah, Middlesbrough have won um, both both matches against Norwich, so I think I'm, I'm quite co- I'm quite happy to, to to back them. You don't think you're going to be horrendously outshot by? Uh... <laughs> maybe, maybe. Well, um, Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, just all from distance. We can see. It. <laughs> well, it yeah. should be. It should be an exciting final. And uh, yeah, as much as I'd prefer to see Norwich in, uh, in the Premier League next year, well, um, it'd be good to see either team, especially considering Middlesbrough's uh, rather lengthy absence. I guess. Well, yeah, I think as well with with if Newcastle go, could at least keep another northeast club. If Newcastle then... go down, that will make my year. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess on that note, um, thanks, Ben. This has been really fun. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, And cheers, Sam. Um, This has been the Analytics FC podcast. Uh, We'll see you next time.